welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hello, I'm Tony Bromley and welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. This is season two, where we are in conversation with presenters from the Researcher Education and Development Scholarship Conference of 2022. The conference theme was how do we stop losing talent in research careers? And today I'm with Sean Vaughan. So hello to you, Sean. Hello, Tony. Um, we were just talking in the preamble there, um, and I, I do like to do a little icebreaker at the beginning. But Great North Run slipped in in there. So when did you do the Great North Run? Um, I did it, I think, three times in total, but last time was probably 13, 14 years ago. Not sure I'd make it round these days. But... <laughs> yeah, and, and I always I watch it on the television, and when um, the top athletes run it in an, an hour, it's... Uh, it's... 13 miles an hour, which you do in the mathematics, of course, is 13 miles an hour, which is quite a running speed. It is. I, I was nowhere near that. <laughs> no, no, I've done some half marathons and I'm nowhere near that. We perhaps move, we'll move on quickly, shall we, to the, okay. the topic supporting the jugglers, the challenges and barriers for academics and creative disciplines becoming research active. So it's interesting because obviously this podcast is about research culture and one of the big aspects of research culture always is, is academic workload particularly mm -hmm. um and i sometimes forget about people like yourself who have the three aspects so i think yeah you know research and teaching and of course the admin but so perhaps it's four aspects so um you, you mentioned juggling things i just wondered if you can get some context really so how how is it for you with the the uh, well i'll let you talk about the creative yeah. aspect i mean i I should be, be honest and say I'm not a creative practitioner, um, so I don't have a professional creative practice, but I work in an institute with a long history. Um, I'm based in the School of Art at Birmingham City University, which goes back to the 1840s. Okay. So a lot of my colleagues are artists, designers, architects, jewellers, um, textile makers, all sorts of things. And I've spotted that they have these three identities. I hadn't thought of ad as admin as a fourth professional career. But... <laughs> well, it's the kind of thing that we end up having to do, obviously. But yeah. Yeah. So it's really seeing for these, these colleagues, these different identities that they have to juggle and the different pressures on their time um, that, that got me thinking, I suppose. And I suppose it, it all interrelates because I guess for the students on courses and the research that goes on, the fact that the individual has a creative practice as well benefits the teaching and, and the research. Yeah, it's often why people have been employed. Um, you know, we want the, the students, the employability agenda, but the skills, the professional knowledge, the contacts that these colleagues have in a, in a virtuous world, it would feed into their teaching it would feed into their, their researchers' practice research, which would also then feed into the academy and into teaching. But I think often it feels like they're being pulled in three very different directions at once. So it's more, it's more than one job. It's it's three different three separate jobs. Um, so I did just wonder, and I think you probably explained this a little bit already, what's brought you into this piece of work what's the drivers behind you that thought that you made you think this is something that I want to look at 
For many years, I led the PhD programme in art and design for my institution, supporting uh, PhD researchers, doctoral researchers, with the, the struggles that they go through in terms of moving from a practitioner to a practice researcher to an academic, the issues of belonging and identity that they go through. And then this summer, I've actually changed roles in my institution. Um, and become the director of research, so responsible for our unit of assessment and looking after strategy, but also supporting colleagues and growing our research community, but amongst staff rather than amongst PGRs. And it just struck me that there's a lot of similarities with those two tasks and challenges, and we're probably more honest about it at PGR. And we just kind of expect staff to get on with it and know what they're doing. Um, another thing I should mention is that a lot of staff in creative disciplines, because they're employed for their professional expertise, don't necessarily come having had or done a doctorate themselves and had that sort of research training. And they often have very established practices, what we would consider practice research with international reputations. Um, and then they're thrown into the, the bureaucracy and the the language of research in universities. So how do, it's an interesting angle on it. I mean, how does that affect them? Is it a negative aspect to their identity that that, um, that they haven't got the PhDs in, in background or does it matter to them? How do they feel about that? It depends on the individual. For some people, they really want the PhD. They want to learn. They want the doctor title. Although, of course, there are doctorates or doc PhD by published works um, that staff can go for that includes creative outputs. For some people it's a real challenge and this was acknowledged in um, with PGR students, with doctoral researchers, with research 10-15 years ago by people like John Hockey, that they're having to juggle these competing identities where they're both the professional expert with recognised expertise, the teacher, and then they're a novice researcher or considered an early career researcher. Um, some of them take that as a bit of a slight if I'm honest they don't feel that their their expertise is being recognized yeah and i just know from my own experience the i don't know how long practice in the university of leeds we call it practice-based research for the phds i don't know how long that's been established but certainly in the 10-15 years i've been at leeds there's been some evolving uh, views on on what practice-based research is and how people get used to it and understand it and that's taken some time to grow out of that's similar sort of experience or I don't actually know how far back it goes a practice-based PhD. Um, I mean in my own institution there was a PhD awarded I think in 91 as right. a, an investigation and a response through artistic practice was how it was um, framed there. I mean I think it is a it's a moving field um, and there's lots of different nomenclatures whether it's practice-based, practice-led, practice-as-research, I tend to default to just practice research um, as an umbrella. That makes that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, I mean, it's it's been around for a long time, but I think a lot of our university systems, um, which happen, I suppose, at a higher up level, that go across many different disciplines, still don't understand practice research. Um, and there can be that that sort of unfamiliarity that can lead to othering and hierarchical positioning. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes. So, which I think possibly leads us into um, the barriers that you've you 
have talked about in the abstract uh, in the presentation. So um, what are the main barriers, do you think, for creative practitioners? What do you see as the main barriers? Um, I think they're on a number of different faults. One of them is definitely the question of identity. Is their, their practice being questioned in some way? And the practice is often very personal and it's so built up into their identity that um, a, a well-meaning peer review type criticism can be taken much more harshly perhaps. Um, although I think we all we all respond badly to peer review at times. It can feel well, very, very personal. <laughs> yes. But when it's also hitting your your established creative identity, um, there are logistical, practical barriers. Um, a lot of these colleagues are on fractional contracts, um, often through choice because they want the time for their creative practice, for their other professional identities. Universities also don't tend to fund that professional practice and professional identity, even though they desire it and want it to feed into the teaching. So right. a fractional contract is kind of an uncomfortable halfway house. So is that um, where some, just for clarification, that's where perhaps somebody works for the university for two days a week and that sort of setup? Yeah, uh, probably more likely three or four days right. a week in my experience of teaching, but time for practice or other professional commitments around it. And I think those of us that have in the past tried to juggle more than one part-time job know how difficult that is. An academic job never fits into contracted hours anyway. No. Uh, we, I don't agree with the culture of overwork, but we all know how pressured academics are. Um, so there are, there are practical challenges. There are also financial challenges. Universities might support staff with a bit of time to be research active and they might support conference fees, um, traveling to conferences, fieldwork costs, although even that's getting challenging. Um, but universities don't tend to support the costs of producing creative practice. So whether that's material costs, space hire, venue hire, collaborators costs, specialist equipment. Um, so colleagues are having to find these costs as well and of course because it's not available from the university it can it can feel as though your practice is not being recognized and valued and i guess um it uh, it will depend on the individual but it's, is it also possible that the particular nature of the creative practice means that it goes up and down you, you talked about incomes um i presume is it predominantly freelance type work where there may be some income for a period of months and then there may not be is it that sort and of think- thing yeah, and it's very, very depending on the creative practice. I mean, fine artists tend to struggle to make money unless they get big commissions. Um, colleagues work in architecture that run architecture practices along the side. You know, there's different income level potentials. Um, so it's it's really tricky and it just adds to this sense of your work not being fully understood or valued whilst at the same time the university wants to benefit from having the research output, the ref return, um, and the input to curriculum. Yeah, I'm really sort of beginning to understand your choice of the word juggler in in the title. It, you know, I, I kind of look at um, academic careers and I find them quite complex anyway, but this really is an additional degree of complexity in something which is already complex, if that makes sense. Um sorry yeah it does and the the again along the practical side i think the way that university systems are set up 
Um, so auditing, um, monitoring processes, institutional repositories, they default very much to the sense of a text-based output, a journal paper or a monograph. Um, and it can be very difficult to work out how to translate a creative practice output that might be multi-component. It might be artwork that's been produced in collaboration with community groups, exhibited in a number of different venues, including internationally. And how you figure out what the bibliographic format for that is to put it in a, an annual review or a report or a repository entry can be really tricky. And again, it adds to this sense of feeling that you, you're being othered and you're not being supported. Um, yeah, well, it, I remember many years ago when um, Leeds University was introducing a system for recording people's references and what have you. Um, and I have a science background to declare. Um, in that lecture, uh, they were talking about the, the databases to draw from to uh, populate automatically. And somebody from the art side said, well, the best database for the sort of thing I do is Amazon. Yeah. They talked about the books that they did. And that really, I mean, I hadn't even thought about it until then. So, you know, I'm used to the standard scientific type databases. So that's even for books, there's there's difficulties. Um, so in, you talked about in your, your abstract in, the, in your title about what we can do about this and perhaps the developmental support for researchers in this sort of field could do with um, changing or perhaps we need different approaches from what we've had so far. So I just I did wonder uh, what your thoughts were on how we support and develop researchers, given the juggling that you've really described well to us. I mean, I think it's it comes to an, a number of things. I think understanding the complexities and being open to understanding the complexities and the identity challenge that these colleagues are, are dealing with um, and a bit of sort of respect for that. It's also about helping colleagues become what I'm starting to call research literate, which is understanding that the, the way that the same thing, the same project, the same practice, the same research can be spoken about in slightly different words to fit the discourses around the, the research ecosystem and research funding and referable outputs. Yes. Um, and it's not often that the colleagues aren't doing practice research and it's not having an impact and it's not significant, but they maybe don't know how to fill it in. And again, if you're um, faced with a form that asks for bibliographic details and you just list exhibition titles, it won't be perceived as being research. Um, so it gets tricky. So I think it's it's empathy. Um, I think it's also to say about helping people understand the different terminology and also all of us who aren't practitioners putting some time in, particularly in institutions where there are creative disciplines, to try and understand practice research and not default to the sort of the normative textual expectation that there's a journal paper or a particular database and metrics. Um, a really easy win in some ways would be for any research development activity in those institutions. It's predominantly post-92 institutions, but not only in the UK. Just use practice research examples in sort of yes. every training programme that we, we provide or workshop or delivery so that it's it's visible and embedded. Yeah. Um, and you know, it is, it's been returned to, to the REF, to the RAE, the earlier version of the assessment exercise in the UK um, for many years. So, you know, it's accepted. We've just got to make that visible. 
Yeah, I'm wondering as, as you're speaking if there's parallels to other um, sectors um, and other disciplines. I wonder if there's any parallel with the medical field where people may well be still um, practicing medically and also doing the research, teaching, administration, and all, all the other things. So uh, there's probably the sort of things you're talking about are probably quite widespread, actually. I think those sorts of issues are. I think also we have to recognise that creative methods are starting to be used more and more across different disciplines. Um, so th this issue of things maybe not having only a textual output is, is spreading across different disciplines and into different places. But yeah, definite similarities with identity challenges faced by colleagues in health professions, even in some elements of education as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of time. Um, I just want to see if we could pull things together. Is there uh, one or two things that you think are really key that perhaps um, institutions or, I mean, I'm a practitioner in the research realms, uh, field myself. Is there one or two key, thing, key things or key messages you want to leave us uh, with to take away? I think it is the, the openness, the recognition that this is difficult and that there isn't one mould or way to be an academic, um, that other routes are as valid. And as I say, that simple thing of using practice research examples mm -hmm. um, in how we talk about research um, just makes people feel more included. Yeah. So I'm going to have to bring it to a close there. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. It's been a really fascinating conversation. So thank you. That's okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Email us at academicdev at leeds.ac.uk. Thanks for listening and here's to you and your research culture.